Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. I forgot to mention last episode, but you probably noticed a bit of a delay in my schedule. First, it turned out that I needed a new computer, so I got that. Then I needed a new microphone, so I got that too. It took me a bit of time to deal with all this, mostly on the computer end. Uh, I actually recorded episode 7 three different times, so that was fun. Anyway, I probably sound a little bit different now with the new recording situation. Likely a little closer to real life, actually, which isn't necessarily better, but, well, at least I'm back. This episode, we'll look at Matthias Corvinus, King of Hungary. He took a kingdom that had been weakened by invasion and hamstrung by infighting amongst its nobility and turned it into what some have called a superpower of its day. He held back Ottoman forces from pushing beyond the Balkans, and he created an empire that encompassed much of southeastern Europe. As always, maps and images can be found on the website almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 7, Episode 9, Matthias Corvinus, and this is The Almost Forgotten. Matthias was born in eastern Hungary in 1443, in what is now Romania, in what was the semi-independent Principality of Transylvania at the time. His mother was a noblewoman from nearby, and his father was probably from Wallachia, another semi-independent Hungarian-aligned principality to the south. His father was probably on campaign at the time, and, well, we'll get into his father in a bit. Matthias flourished in the second half of the 15th century as the Ottoman Empire had entrenched itself on the European side of the Bosporus and finally took Constantinople. To their south, the Mamluk Sultanate still ruled Egypt and much of the Levant. To the east, Turkic tribes ruled over the lands between Syria and India, the Black Sheep Turks, White Sheep Turks, and the remnants of the Timurid Empire. To their north, the Golden Horde ruled most of the western steppe. India was still ruled by the Delhi Sultanate, but they were confined mostly in the north. Central and southern India had various kingdoms, including the Vijayanagara Empire in the south. Tibet was an independent state to the northeast of India, while to the southeast, the Ayutthaya Kingdom of Thailand was the most powerful state. Burma was fractured, the Khmer Empire had shrunk into the smaller kingdom of Cambodia in the first half of the century, although the Malacca Sultanate was in a strong position around the Straits. China was ruled by the Ming Dynasty, who had overthrown the Mongol Yuan Dynasty a century earlier. The Joseon Dynasty ruled Korea, while in Japan, the Ashikaga Shogunate collapsed in the Sengoku period, a century and a half of constant civil war began. Across the ocean, in North America, some of the early cultures that had thrived previously, such as the Pueblo cultures of the Southeast and the Middle Mississippian cultures, were in decline phases. It is possible 
that the Iroquois Confederacy formed right around this time. The Aztec Empire dominated central Mexico, and Tenochtitlan may have been one of the ten most populous cities in the world at the time. Further south, the Chimor Empire on the Peruvian coast was the strongest power, but the Incan kingdom was quickly growing and expanding into an empire itself. Across the Atlantic, the Mali Empire had been the major power in West Africa, but the Songhai kingdom gained their independence under Sunni Ali, conquering much of the Mali territory. To the south, the kingdom of Mutapa expanded rapidly and took over as the regional power in place of the kingdom of Zimbabwe. Up the coast, the Adal Sultanate was rapidly expanding, which would soon bring it into conflict with the Ethiopian Empire. In Europe, starting in the west, the Portuguese were sailing down the coast of Africa. Prince Henry the Navigator died in 1460. Bartholomew Dias reached the Cape of Good Hope in 1488. Isabella ruled Castile while her husband Ferdinand ruled Aragon, and the Emirate of Granada ruled a smaller and smaller territory on the peninsula. England was embroiled in the War of the Roses. France was coming out of the Hundred Years' War as a more united kingdom, while the Burgundian state controlled, well, a whole bunch of territory in eastern France and the western Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire was the big fragmented power of Central Europe. Many of its constituent kingdoms and duchies were able to essentially act independently. The Kingdom of Bohemia was one of these. City-states vied for power in northern Italy as the Renaissance began to take hold there. To the north, the Kalmar Union controlled much of Scandinavia. The Kingdom of Poland and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania were powerful states of Eastern Europe, ruled by a joint monarchy. The Grand Duchy of Moscow spent the latter half of the century expanding, overtaking the neighboring Russian states and pushing away the weakening Mongol remnants. And that takes us to southeastern Europe, which takes us to Hungary. Now, to the south of Hungary, there were smaller states on the Balkan Peninsula, such as Serbia and Bosnia, which were allied with Hungary. And then there were the Ottomans. The Ottomans had conquered lands on the Balkan Peninsula and, of course, held much of the territory of Anatolia. Now, Hungary itself is located in the Carpathian Basin. And if you look at a political map of the area today, it doesn't really give a good view of what was historically Hungary. But look at a topographic map, and it is almost instantly revealed. The Carpathian Basin is surrounded by mountains pretty much on all sides, with just a few openings. That area, including some of the highlands, includes modern-day Hungary, Slovakia, Transylvania in western Romania, northern Serbia, and Slavonia, or northern Croatia. At times, Hungary even stretched beyond this natural geography to control the Dinaric Alps region, that is, the northwestern mountains of the Balkan Peninsula, which throws in the rest of Croatia as well as Bosnia and Herzegovina. It also at times moved east of Transylvania to Moldavia in today's eastern Romania and Moldova. But for the most part, Hungary was the Carpathian Basin and some of the mountains that surrounded it. The Kingdom of Hungary was founded by the Magyars. They came to Europe from the east, and their language was unlike the Indo-European languages they encountered. 
Hungarian is probably more well-known for being related to Finnish and Estonian, but it is a few small tribes, the Mansi and the Kanti, from the area around the Ural Mountains that have the closest languages. That is the presumed Magyar homeland, essentially western Siberia, although we shouldn't assume that a massive group of Magyars just moved into the Carpathian Basin. Certainly many of them came from Central Asia, and they brought language and culture there. But they likely picked up people along the way, making it more of a genetic mixture than one might presume. They came there by way of the Pontic Steppe, north of the Black Sea. Hungarian legend states they spent some time on the eastern shore of the Sea of Azov, part of the Cimmerian Bosporus a thousand years earlier. But at the time, they were subjects of the Khazar Khaganate, In the 9th century, they began raiding the Carpathian Basin, but by the end of the century, they had set themselves up more permanently along the Tissa River, which flows into the Danube from the north and east. The Magyars spent much of the 10th century raiding Europe from their base on the Danube. They used lightning cavalry raids, including feigned retreats, the typical hallmarks of the steppe riders throughout the millennium. Raiding continued and became more and more intense until, in 955, Otto I of Germany, Season 1, Episode 6, finally handed them a crushing defeat, killing the majority of the army. Hungarian policy turned to one of a Christianized Western state at that point, and Stephen was crowned as their first king. Within a few centuries, the original dynasty, the Arpads, lost power to the local lords. The Hungarian Diet, or Parliamentum, began meeting in the late 1200s and turned into the legislative power in the kingdom. Royal power was limited, but there was respect for the Hungarian crown, so rather than one of these magnates seizing the throne, they found new kings that were descended from the Arpads. The 14th century saw rule by the Angevin dynasty, which began with the half-French, half-Hungarian King Charles. The Angevins once again increased royal power at the expense of the magnates, but the last Angevin king had no heir. When Sigismund of Luxembourg, who was married to the daughter of the last Angevin king, was crowned in 1387, he was not privileged with massive royal holdings to keep the magnates in line. And there was a civil war anyway, so none of it was easy for him, and he had to invade and another man was crowned, but was assassinated. In the end, Sigi won out, and he became king of Hungary, although he certainly had to make his concessions to the aristocracy, who once again began to grow in power. He ruled for half a century, often absent, often warring with his own barons in Hungary, always owing them money. When Sigismund died in 1437, his daughter was married to Albrecht of Habsburg, so, just like with Sigismund, the son-in-law was elected king. The Ottomans were pushing deeper into the Balkans at the time, and they were able to take Serbia. Albrecht joined up with the military, perhaps with thoughts of conquering Serbia himself, and promptly caught dysentery in camp and died in 1439. His son was born soon after, so the baby was crowned in 1440 but many wealthy magnates were rightfully interested in combating the Ottoman threat and chose their own king, the king of Poland. 
The magnates were more like warrior chiefs in many ways who happened to be major landowners. That is to say, they were fighters, and they were able to hold southern and eastern Hungary, despite the Habsburgs and their baby king's opposition coming in from the north and west. The kingdom was divided, but led by Miklos Ujlaki and Janos Hunyadi, the Hungarian magnates and the Polish king had a huge victory against the Habsburgs in 1441. Hunyadi, who had served Sigismund, wasn't of high noble stock, and he wasn't a leading magnate. But he was a leading general, thanks to his success, so he was rewarded and given more lands and more titles. He soon became a leading magnate, the leading magnate, and was installed in the south where he proceeded to attack the Ottomans. He earned a reputation as a great general and became very popular. He soon became the largest owner of property in the kingdom. He and Ujlaki led an army into the Balkans and were successful enough to make the Ottoman sultan Murad II agree to a peace treaty. Considering he conquered the border states just a few years before, this was a big accomplishment. Despite their taking Serbia, the Pope convinced the Hungarians to not honor the treaty. They marched further south, hoping the Ottomans were too busy with other troubles to mount a solid defense. They were quite wrong about this. The Ottomans responded with speed and brought an army even bigger than the Crusaders that were attacking. The Hungarians and their allies performed well at the Battle of Varna in Bulgaria and were doing all right at the outset. But after a successful defense, was followed by another attack, Hunyadi brought in some of his Wallachian forces to help stop the counterattack. Before he went, he told the king, whatever you do, stay put. We can definitely win this thing. So, of course, the king decided to charge in with his Polish knights to try to take Murad. It seems they were pretty close to being successful, but not close enough. Not far from Murad's tent, the Hungarian king was killed by Janissaries. And of course, then all hell broke loose. The cavalry scrambled to retreat, and pretty soon it was a rout. Hunyadi was able to escape, barely it seems. Following this battle, the Ottomans were able to focus on finishing off Constantinople, while the Hungarians decided it was time to look inward. They pretty much realized after the death of the king they had elevated that they now had to recognize Ladislaus the Posthumous as king. That was what Albrecht's son was called. But he was still only four, and they wouldn't let his caretaker, the Holy Roman Emperor, run their kingdom. So, the magnates started running it on their own. According to Janos Bach in A History of Hungary, quote, The years that followed Varna witnessed the maturing of the idea of a noble aristocratic polity and the establishment of a number of institutional frameworks that were to last until the end of Old Hungary in 1848. The underlying idea was that decisions, such as election and coronation of a king, should be made by a gathering of all the propertied men of the realm, unquote. In theory, this sounds something like a democracy. In practice, it was far from it. While there were representatives across the board, the aristocracy were the ones who steered the ship of state. It was, as Bach writes, quote, more the Polish Republic of Nobles than a representative assembly, unquote for the ensuing centuries, but it was something, and it started here. The lesser nobility, while not particularly powerful on their own, 
was a constituency that had enough numbers that alliance with them could give someone else significant power. And that's just what Janos Hunyadi did. And what it got him was the regency in 1446. Negotiations with the Habsburgs were at a stalemate, so the Diet elected him governor. This quelled civil unrest, essentially. The men with power and their less powerful counterparts would get to meet and elect a leader. Hunyadi was good enough, and this ended any real civil war. Hunyadi may have been content with ignoring the Habsburgs and the weak young king, but a few defeats on the borders in the late 1440s caused him to change his tune. Eventually, he allied with the Habsburgs and started acting like a real honest-to-goodness regent for Ladislaus. In 1453, Ladislaus was allowed to come into Hungary, and Hunyadi started to gain a reputation of caring more for the king and crown than the Hungarian nobility. He lost some of his popularity among the magnates, and Bach doesn't consider him their leader at this point anymore, although he was still the regent. Anyway, in 1455, the Ottomans, flushed with their victory that ended the Roman Empire, retook Serbia. Then they marched to Belgrade, at the time part of the Kingdom of Hungary, and began to besiege it. Hunyadi acted quickly, along with his old buddy Ujlaki, and they organized a relief. The sultan had something like 30,000 soldiers, while Belgrade only had a few thousand inside to defend the castle. Most Hungarian lords didn't send much in the way of support. They weren't happy with Hunyadi and feared his growing power. So Hunyadi, along with his allies, gathered a bunch of peasants to defend the city. Despite how a bunch of peasants against the Turks usually goes, this time it worked. They relieved the siege and chased the Ottomans off, although with a large contingent of poorly armed peasants, there was no thought of pursuit. While regrouping after this stunning victory and being hailed across Europe as a hero and defender of the continent, Hunyadi soon died from a plague that had run through the camp. Ladislaus was still only 16, and the Hungarian nobles didn't really want to give any power to their Habsburg king, so they named a new regent. Despite promises to Hunyadi that they wouldn't, they named Ulrich of Silai, or Selji, as regent. Ulrich was one of Hunyadi's biggest rivals, a powerful magnate who had significant lands in Slovenia, Bosnia, and that general area. Hunyadi's eldest son, Laszlo, accepted this and bit his lip and kept quiet for a bit. Then he arranged for Ulrich and the king to enter one of his castles while trapping their entourage outside. Ulrich was soon murdered, and King Ladislaus had no choice but to pardon Laszlo. Laszlo was appointed to all sorts of high positions, but within a few months, when the king had his freedom to do so, he had Laszlo arrested and quickly executed. His younger brother was imprisoned, but spared for the moment. This execution and imprisonment caused outrage, of course, among Team Hunyadi, who soon rose in rebellion. Janos Hunyadi's widow and her brother Michael Silagi led the rebellion that threatened to overwhelm the kingdom. King Ladislaus fled, taking the younger Hunyadi boy with him to Prague. In November, about eight months after he had Laszlo executed, King Ladislaus died there in Prague. The Hunyadis now had the upper hand in the civil war, and they appealed to the new king of Bohemia to send their surviving child home, which he did. 
And that is how Matthias Hunyadi returned to Hungary, where he was basically immediately elected king. As Bach writes, quote, Helped by the aristocratic backing, the Hunyadi resources, and the popularity of the family name, it was only a matter of form to have Matthias elected king. On January 24, 1458, the assembled nobility acclaimed the son of the hero of Belgrade and the brother of the treacherously executed Laszlo Hunyadi with great enthusiasm, unquote. This 14-year-old brought a bride with him, the daughter of the new king of Bohemia, and an army provided to him by his new father-in-law. His uncle Zilagi was appointed regent because Matthias was young, but the new king soon dismissed him. For his power base, instead he turned to those lesser nobles and promised them a greater role in exchange for their support. He then turned his attention to the Ottoman Empire. He made a few raids into their territory and held an official Hungarian diet in the south of the kingdom to plan an invasion. And then he hightailed it back to Buda. See, the Holy Roman Emperor, Vladislaus the Posthumous' uncle, had a claim to the Hungarian throne as well, especially after some disaffected Hungarian nobles elected him. Those disaffected nobles, the rival clan to the Hunyadis, now included Uncle Silagi, who was, I guess, especially disaffected after being dismissed as regent. And it was led by old Hunyadi buddy Ujlaki, of all people. They went to Austria and told the Holy Roman Emperor that they decided he was their new king. A civil war began, mostly with Matthias and his loyal Hungarian followers, and make no mistake, he had plenty of those, fighting against Czech mercenaries in the north. There was pressure from Rome to end the conflict, and despite a few losses, Matthias probably had the upper hand, with more barons on his side. Eventually, the emperor did concede his claim to the throne in a convoluted way in which he was still able to technically claim it, but Matthias could too, or something. Whatever, it's medieval honor politics, and the point is, Matthias worked it out. Ujlaki even stayed as a leading member of his court. As for the emperor, Matthias promised 80,000 florins, and that if he died childless, the emperor would get the throne. After these negotiations were complete, Matthias was finally crowned as the actual official king of Hungary in March of 1464. He was the son of a wealthy and powerful nobleman, the grandson of a Wallachian knight, and the first king of Hungary elected who had no royal blood. Matthias's offenses against the encroaching Ottomans helped secure the southern border. But despite spending the first few years after his coronation planning to fight the Ottomans, and at times actually fighting them, he realized he needed significantly more men to do it. Even with a better Hungarian army, he figured without a mass of men coming from other European allies, it would probably be better to try to just ignore the Turks, as long as they weren't attacking him. So, he took that Hungarian army into Transylvania to put down a rebellion. He did this pretty quickly, and then decided to march further east into Moldavia. The prince there, Stephen, had supported the rebels, and Matthias decided to teach him a lesson. Matthias marched his army into Moldavia and burned down a few towns. Peace negotiations began, but they broke down. Eventually, the two armies met at the town of Baia, and Matthias fortified his position. The Moldavians attacked, and in the ensuing chaos, 
More than 5,000 died on each side. Matthias was wounded and carried off the field. Both sides ended up retreating, but the Hungarians gave up their fortified position and their baggage train, which made this a Moldavian victory, and Matthias was the one who was taught a lesson. And I don't mean that figuratively. After the performance of his army and the questionable loyalty of some of his commanders, he realized he needed something more like a standing army of loyal soldiers. And in order to do that, he needed money. I won't bore you, or quite frankly me, by explaining the reforms. Let's just say he increased taxes and got his noble allies to approve of it, significantly increasing the kingdom's revenue. Ban notes they were taking in almost as much money as France or Burgundy by the 1470s, perhaps the two richest kingdoms in Europe at least until 1477 and the Battle of Nancy, as detailed in Season 6. Hey, speaking of previous seasons, there were still some Bohemian Hussite forces who occupied fortresses in northern Hungary. Season 5, Episodes 6, 7, and 8 for more on the Hussites. Matthias hired them on as mercenaries, and he used his money to keep paying these and other mercenaries. Loyal to him, since he kept paying them, and available any time since he didn't stop paying them, Matthias created something that even the French and the Burgundians didn't have, a large standing army. They consisted of, besides the aforementioned Czechs, men from Hungary, Austria, and Silesia. But because he was the man in charge, he didn't have to worry about the confusion of command that these multinational forces often fell victim to in things like the Crusades and he didn't have to wait on his Hungarian, Wallachian, Serbian, Bosnian, etc., etc., magnates and lords to bring him each of their own soldiers. Instead, he had an army of something like 20,000 men by the 1470s. While in the East there were larger engagements, this was a pretty massive force to start your troop count with in Europe. The biggest battles of the contemporary Burgundian Wars and the Wars of the Roses had about this many on each side, maybe reaching 30,000 each if you're being generous. And Matthias did still have those Hungarian, Wallachian, Serbian, Bosnian, etc., etc. forces to call upon when he needed, so he was probably able to get to 30,000 anyway. This was a mixed group, not just by nationality, but by tactics. Matthias's father had certainly adopted the Hussite war wagons, and soldiers who could turn those wagons into mobile defensive fortresses were part of the mercenary army. But there was also heavy cavalry, that is, mounted armored knights, as well as lighter cavalry. Combining these, according to Bach, quote, Matthias's generals successfully applied traditional Hungarian hit-and-run tactics, just as the Ottoman irregulars and Sepahis were wont to harass Transylvania, Croatia, and Hungary by swift raids for booty and destruction, the troops of the Southern Defense conducted similar forays into Ottoman-held territory, unquote. This army, known as the Black Army of Hungary, had succeeded against the Ottomans, but Matthias mostly fought battles to Hungary's north. One reason given was that he needed more land and money in order to build the kind of army to fight the Turks. But more likely, he realized he was never going to kick the Ottomans out of Europe. So, better to solidify the border there, and basically have a truce with them, and then go fight the Europeans who kept trying to meddle in his kingdom. Either way, Matthias spent more time fighting Europeans than Turks. 
After his wife died, he ended up going to war with his former father-in-law, King George of Bohemia. Rome was, as usual, against the Bohemians because of their Hussite beliefs. The Catholic lords there pledged loyalty to Matthias and named him King of Bohemia, although he never really was the owner of the title. He eventually negotiated with King George and received considerable concessions in the peace treaty that followed, which came in the form of huge territorial gains. His holdings grew to include Moravia, basically the eastern portion of today's Czech Republic, Silesia, today's southeastern Poland, and Lusatia to the west of that, stretching into Germany. King George died in 1471, so the results of this were agreed upon by Matthias and King Vladislaus of Bohemia, drafted in the Treaty of Brno, finalized at the Peace of Olomouc. Besides these concessions, it allowed both to call themselves King of Bohemia, but Matthias had to address Vladislaus with that title, while Vladislaus didn't have to call Matthias this, because that's the ridiculous kind of thing people cared about back then. Soon after, discontent grew at home, because of all the taxes he had to gather to pay the Black Army. Well, at least that's what they claimed. They were mostly upset about Matthias consolidating power and giving high positions to lesser nobility and even commoners. Discontent grew so much that there were again rebellions by nobles in Hungary and Transylvania. It culminated in 1471, when the crown was offered to a prince of Poland. This brought a Polish army into Hungary, led by the youngest son of the king of Poland. The vast majority of the magnates ended up staying loyal to Matthias, and the Polish army withdrew after a brief period. But it served to make him even more wary of the higher nobility of Hungary, and even more dependent on his own mercenary forces and those counselors from the lesser nobility and burgher class. In 1476, he married Beatrice, the daughter of Ferdinand of Aragon, not the king married to Isabella, but a different one. This Ferdinand was actually king of Naples and his daughter seemed smitten. Matthias, for his part, also appears to have been quite fond of his second wife, and their marriage is reputed to have been a happy one. After Olomouc, Matthias was able to focus his interests in Austria, namely those interests being fighting the Habsburgs. After the emperor started calling Vladislaus the king of Bohemia, Matthias was all, hey, that's my title, and marched into Austria to frighten everyone. Matthias was confirmed as King of Bohemia by the other King of Bohemia, which helped him focus on Austria. At least he wanted to focus on Austria, but he was distracted by another Ottoman incursion. This one, in 1479, was quickly met with an army that consisted of Hungarian lords and their troops, and the Turks were decisively beaten. Matthias organized a massive southern defense and was able to repel the Ottomans. The Sultan soon died, and with all these Hungarian forces ready for a fight in the south, this might have been a good time to focus on them. Instead, Matthias turned back to his grudge against the Holy Roman Emperor. He signed a peace treaty with the new sultan and invaded Austria. The Habsburgs ruled it, and they were more into diplomacy than fighting at the time. But the diplomacy didn't work. The emperor couldn't get other parts of the empire to help him out. So he had to rely on the Habsburg military, and as I said, this wasn't so great at the time. The Black Army took city after city until the high point of the war came in the Siege of Vienna in 1485. A siege began in January, but with no relief army coming, 
The inevitable was eventually realized by the inhabitants, and they surrendered. Matthias entered Vienna in June of 1485. The war continued, and Matthias took the rest of Lower Austria before an armistice was signed in 1487. Matthias then turned to focus on his succession, as he may have realized he didn't have much time thanks to ill health. Matthias had no legitimate children, but he did have a son, Janos. He worked to get guarantees of Janos's succession, but despite promises made and significant international support, it was not to be. Matthias died in 1490, only 47 years old, with no recognized heir to his throne. The Hungarian nobility was tired of being pushed aside by Matthias, and they attempted to instead find a king they could push around. They settled on Vladislaus II, that other king of Bohemia, and named him king of Hungary as well. Besides a war for the succession with other rivals that lasted until 1494 and weakened the kingdom, Vladislaus made too many concessions to the nobility and couldn't afford to keep the black army going. This would lead to disaster, as despite Hungary's position as a European superpower for the few decades of Matthias's life, it quickly faded in strength. The Ottomans began winning again in the south, and without any centralized power, and with the nobility not trusting the royal authority much at all, Hungary wasn't able to mount effective counteroffensives. Well, that and Vladislaus was broke and couldn't retain a large army. The Ottomans continued to grow in power, and Hungary got weaker. Vladislaus died in 1516, and his son Louis became king. The financial state of the kingdom was a complete mess, and the magnates ruled a disunited country. In 1521, the Ottoman sultan, Suleiman the Magnificent, saw the opportunity and attacked, taking the important fortress city of Belgrade. The Hungarians, in such disarray, due to the lack of centralized power and constant rivalries between the nobility, couldn't even mount a relief. The kingdom was ripe for the taking. Five years later, at Mohac, this is precisely what happened. Considered one of the most consequential battles, certainly in Eastern European history, the Battle of Mohac wasn't just a decisive Ottoman victory. It was an utter annihilation of the Hungarian forces. The kingdom was soon divided up, and most of it was occupied by the Ottomans. Most of the parts that weren't, like Transylvania and Wallachia, became vassal states of the Ottomans. A small section in the northeast, known as Royal Hungary, survived, in a way, and was ruled by the Austrian Habsburgs. Somewhat ironic, considering Matthias had ruled Habsburg Austria. As for Matthias, besides reforming the army and the tax code, he made great strides to creating an early modern state in Hungary. He went after the rebellious rival magnates to help consolidate royal power. He was able, after some time, rather than handing out titles to the richest men, to go the other way. He brought men who weren't high nobility into positions of power. According to Miklos Molnar in A Concise History of Hungary, quote, Matthias filled command posts in the Banates, bishoprics, army, and counties with new men, unquote. This was not only a way to get loyal allies into these places and limit the power and reach of the biggest landholders, it was also a way to bring in professionals to the government. Hundreds of new men with education and competency 
were put into roles within the administrative body of his kingdom. Matthias also embraced the burgeoning Renaissance. Hungary became the second region where the Renaissance took hold after Italy. Matthias's marriage to Beatrix helped usher this in, as Italian scholars and humanists literally moved to Buddha to be part of his court. His most famous contribution to the Renaissance was the establishment of a massive library, the Bibliotheca Corviniana, in Buddha Castle. It was thought to be the second largest collection of books in the world at the time, after the Vatican's. But unlike the one in Rome, which had a shed load of Bibles, this was 3,000 codices that reflected the state of Renaissance thinking at the time. There were books in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, and they were on everything from history to natural science to philosophy. A codex, by the way, and I looked this up, is really just a book as opposed to a scroll. It may have had more than one work inside and probably was made from something besides paper, but it was a pre-modern book, not some magical tome which incorporates all knowledge that exists or has ever existed, and in order to obtain it, one must first become the embodiment of the eight virtues, the avatar, or anything like that. Just a book. The Hungarian Renaissance, as it is called, was impressive for its time, and it predated the Renaissance in most of Europe. But Hungary didn't have the kind of wealth that Western Europe did, and without such patrons funding artists, Hungary's artistic heritage was not able to be as robust as that of the West. When Hungary fell a few decades after Matthias's time, so did the Hungarian Renaissance. So, as Molnar writes, quote, Caught between an insufficient past and an imminent catastrophe, the Hungarian Renaissance was doomed to be no more than a splendid interlude, unquote. A splendid interlude is probably a pretty good way to describe Matthias's reign as a whole. Matthias was a formidable military leader, although his focus on the north and west rather than the south and east spelled trouble for Hungary soon after his death. He had taken advantage of an Ottoman Empire suffering through a succession crisis during the height of his own powers. Had he taken advantage of an Ottoman Empire suffering through a succession crisis during the height of his own powers, he might have prevented the fate that befell his own country, in large part due to Ottoman expansion. That being said, he grew the Kingdom of Hungary immensely. By the time of his death, it stretched beyond its traditional borders to include Silesia, Lusatia, Moravia, Lower Austria, Croatia, Slavonia, Transylvania, and Moldavia. Hungary was a superstate, comparable in size, yet more united than the Holy Roman Empire. But without a true heir, it was all ephemeral, and most of these gains were quickly lost. Besides his foreign policy, his internal reforms were impactful. He built up a 15th century version of what became the early modern state, including the burgeoning absolutism that soon took hold in places like Tudor England and Habsburg Spain in the 1500s, and culminating with Louis XIV in the late 1600s and early 1700s. Had he survived or had a competent heir, or had his death at least not been followed by a civil war and a rending of his reforms, Hungary would have been in a different position when the Ottomans turned their attention back to the North Balkans. As it was, he built Hungary into a world power and brought a new era of prosperity and advancement to the kingdom, at least for a time.
Next episode, we'll finish up Season 7 by moving forward about a century, to the middle of the 17th century, when European powers were expanding at the expense of the rest of the world, as they established their colonial empires, to learn about a Polish duke who tried to do the same. Thanks for listening. 